everybody. Brian Kane here with this Mental Performance Mastery Group Coaching Program brought to you by our friends at Fundraising University. And I wanted to just welcome you to today's call and let you know that Fundraising University offers a variety, a variety, yes, a variety and a variety of fundraising efforts that, that help teams and students run profitable, effective, and fast-paced fundraisers designed to raise the most amount of money in the least amount of time to help you reach your fundraising goals. Now, if you're interested in running a fundraiser with Fundraising University or learning more about how to be an ambassador coach so that you can get paid to promote Fundraising University in your communities, please contact Zach Sorensen, who's also a mental performance coach for the Atlanta Braves to learn how to get started. And his email address we'll post here in the chat, but it is Z Sorensen, Z S O R E N S E N at fundraisingu.net. Posting that in the chat. Here we go. And for today's call, super excited to welcome my friend Brittany Looney to the call today. She is a PhD in educational psychology and learning systems from the Florida State University. She's got her degree in kinesiology from Cal State Fresno, an MS in exercise science from Florida State, and a degree in criminal justice from Texas State University where she was an NCAA Division I basketball player. She's currently the director and creator of the Elite Cognition and Human Optimization Program at Core One, working in special operations in training mental performance for over the last 13 years. Her She focuses her efforts on serving those who operate within the dynamic high-stakes environments where people are, people are a critical capability and human error is a legit risk to self and or the mission. Excited to bring in Dr. Brittany Looney today to talk about mental performance in the most high stress environments and also have her share some strategies that you as a coach can take and use and their strategies that she's used both as a division one women's college basketball player and also as an ultra endurance athlete. Let's welcome Dr. Brittany Looney to the show. Brittany, thank you for being here. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this. Yeah, fantastic. And we're excited to have you join us. You know, we've featured a lot of of coaches, team sport coaches and mental performance coaches. But I think the cool role that you get to play is as a mental performance coach who played high level team sport, but also maybe maybe now works in the most high level of all team sports and special operations. So super excited to have you help us kind of, you know, extract some of the learning and things that we take from those communities that we can apply into our everyday lives to really be that best version of of us. Absolutely. I've uh, been incredibly honored to have the journey that I have had. So yeah. I'm happy to share it. Yeah. Well, excited, you know, excited to to learn more about that journey. And I think, you know, I gave you the, a little bit of a, a kind of a history and a background uh, in your experiences, but I'm sure I left some things out that are critical. So is there anything that our listeners, people that are live with us on the call, our coaches that, that they need to know about Brittany Looney that I did not mention? It's not they need to know it, but uh, it's helpful to know. I'm sure they could go on with their lives without it, but uh, <laughs> I always think it's good to know someone's evolution and how they uh, got where they got, because uh, there are distinct reasons, especially for why I joined this field and uh, why I ended up going the military route. So when I was playing basketball, my senior year in college, I had uh, my fourth major head injury. It was the fourth one that gave me actual brain damage on CAT scans or a lot of other little ones along the way. Uh, that was like back in 2002, 2003, when we really weren't talking about head injuries the way that we are now. And I remember the day that neurologist said, your career's over. If you get hit in the head one more time, 
you're probably dead and that's if you're lucky and uh it took me a while to realize what he meant by i'd be lucky if i died from that but he literally meant i'd be a vegetable if i did not die so had to give up my entire passion i mean i was a scrappy uh basketball player i feel like that's probably the only reason i made it i'm five three uh and i was scrappy as can be and it was my entire identity so I was studying to be a defense attorney at the time, and that's what completely changed my life trajectory and put me on the mental performance route, because I was that athlete, uh, usually in the back row, who thought people like me were like, mm, that might be for some other athletes, but that's not for me. I can physically hack it. And uh, I was wrong. Uh, knowing what I know now, I really wish I would have listened and not had uh, that arrogant attitude. And, you know, when you're, you know, early 20s, late teens, you think you know it all. Uh, so I've learned a lot since then. But I think that is an important part of the journey is that it took losing my com complete identity and also a lot of mental function. And I had to refine myself and I refound myself in this field. Mm. Another another beautiful case of turning your mess into your masterpiece and adversity into your advantage. But let's go back to that moment, Brittany, if we could, where you, you have that meeting with a neurologist, you lose that identity. And I think for so many, I know I went through it as a college baseball player and many athletes uh, go, go through this that, that I work with. And I think it's real for our coaches to understand this too, because coaches go through it too, when they get fired, when they lose a job, when they retire, is this idea of athlete identity or coach identity. And sometimes when that gets taken away from you, you know, it can, it can rock your world. Go back to that moment. What was that like for you in terms of dealing with the, wow, my basketball career is over and now what, was that a pretty quick transition for you or what was that moment like? Definitely not quick. Uh, I had a lot of people there who helped me in very significant ways. Uh, my world was rocked. I went into a deep state of depression, but that also was not talked about then. So I really didn't even know a name to put on it. Uh, I just knew I wasn't who I was. Uh, in many senses of the word, because with the brain damage, I also had emotional control issues. I had frontal, uh, prefrontal cortex uh, damage and loss inhibition, put my hand through walls. So I wasn't only dealing with the void of losing basketball of like, that's how I defined myself and really didn't think I'd end up having to go on to practice law. And then I was faced with this, oh, that thing I've been studying, Um, that now it's time I actually have to do it. There's no more basketball. But I was also facing personality changes. Uh, I also had interior grade amnesia. So getting through a senior year where you can't form new memories, uh, that took a lot of different trial and error of techniques. It also took a lot of overnighters and not going to sleep before tests. Uh, so that moment was significant. Uh, but uh, my assistant coach, uh, she put a note in my locker, and I'll never forget it. And she since passed. She said, one day you will find something to put all your passion towards. And she f really believed that. I didn't at the time, but I will tell you, I kept that letter. I still have it to this day. And I found that thing. It took a while uh, to realize it was this. Um, but that moment was, it was lost. It was a lost feeling. Uh, no one had answers, but I went to a counselor and was like, well, I'm not doing anything else with my time. I can't play. I can't practice. So what else am I going to do? And my coach kind of pushed me into going. And that's when he told me about mental training. And my coach was phenomenal. She let me start practicing the techniques that I was learning through uh, sports psychology. And this is just dabbling. I wasn't yet studying the field, but I got to work with the freshman athletes and talk to them about mental rehearsals and all the things that I really wish I would have done. And I got to teach them my lessons learned like, hey, I was this person 
And now knowing what I do now, I wish this is the stuff that I would have learned. And they were so open. Uh, it was really the best case scenario for having to go through a situation like that. Mm. You know, for all of our coaches here that have, that have been with us, amazing how Brittany just dropped without maybe knowing she even did it, the million dollar question, right? And the million dollar question we ask all the time is, what do you know now you wish you knew then? And that's where we're going, you know, and, and it's amazing how I share the story of, I had a baseball player who was at Arizona state. I live 15 minutes from Arizona state. Uh, he came over here, was a first round pick of the San Francisco giants came over here, you know, after the season was over for college and then he's getting ready to go play professional baseball. And, you know, we were talking about the difference between being a college athlete and a pro athlete and the lack of structure and the amount of pull that it's on you. And there's no structure from college classes and strength coaches like you're you're kind of an independent contractor and you either make it or you don't and i to, to anticipate a lot of those things and we talked about the behaviors and the routines and the importance of like structure and he said man you sound a lot like tom i said Who, who's tom he goes oh i was just texting with tom brady and i'm like what like the quarterback tom brady you're shit man and he's like no really we went to the same high school and our you know coach had connected us football coach and he sent me a message said hey congrats on being another you know jay sarah first round pick i said when was the last time you were texting tom he said five five minutes ago uh in your driveway i said text him one more time i said ask tom brady the million dollar question ask tom brady what he knows now having won i think at the time six super bowls he wish he knew when he came out of the university of michigan Bzz. Three minutes later, you get a response and it says, oh, as early as you can in your career, find out what's good, what's bad, do more good, less bad, and you're going to have a great career. And that whole mentality of like, what do you know now you wish you knew then? Like, what does Dr. Brittany Looney know now if you could go back and you could grab yourself in that moment in San Marcos, Texas, uh, Texas State, go Cats, and you could go back there and say, this is, this is, this is it. This is what I know now. I'm going to revert. I'm going to go back and I'm going to share that with you. Like, what would you have, what would you have done with her? What would you have done with your team? If you had studied sports psychology, you know, like you have now back, back in that time and in, in, in college. I would have told myself about the two different mindsets, the training mindset and the trusting mindset. I was very much a really hard worker, but I didn't ever turn off the analyzing for games. And I thought that the harder I tried, the harder I thought, the better I would be no matter what. And I didn't realize that you really have to have two recipes going on, uh, that I couldn't bring that same training mindset that helped me develop all the skill to be able to instinctually execute it. And that was one of the biggest um, things. When I learned that in the field, when I was studying, I was like, wow, if I would have just known that as a player, that there are two mindsets and I have to get really good at both mindsets. And then I also have to train myself to trust myself. It's not just a light switch that literally goes on and off. It's more like a dimmer where you have to actually teach yourself to trust yourself instinctually in those games rather than approach everything as if it was uh, this thing to be analyzed, scrutinized, and uh, trying to get better in games. Uh, that's fine if I do. I know it makes you better over time, but I needed to turn off the brain at some point. So I think that's lesson number one uh, that really stood out to me when I started learning more about sports psychology. The other thing I wish I would have known is we all perform at different levels of activation. Uh, my team liked to get amped up. Uh, the music in the locker room was really amped up or chest bumping. I mean, it was uh, it was just wild, right? And I 
looking back, I remember thinking, gosh, I just wish I could relax. But I thought I was meant to be amped up because everybody else was. The coach wanted us ready to go. So I'm like, well, I got to be ready to go. And I didn't realize that by putting myself in everybody else's zone of their optimal functioning, I was taking myself out of my own. And looking back, I really had my best gains. My flow moments were actually when I was relatively depressed and down because that's the only time I turned off my brain when I had perspective about life. And that tended to be at uh, points at which I was down. So I stopped overanalyzing basketball or when I was really sick, like, you know, the Michael Jordan game when he had the flu. I played really well when I was sick and injured because I stopped thinking so much. So I wish someone would have just told me like, hey, you don't have to be amped up like all of them. You can go off and do your own thing, because uh, I think that would have made a big difference in learning how to make that switch between training and trusting. And then the last one, uh, lesson three was the power of mental rehearsals. I started dabbling in it uh Late junior into senior year, but I didn't have time to see the effects because that's when I got uh, the career ending injury. But the power of those mental rehearsals, I started seeing it pay off, but I didn't get the chance to really show it in a season. And now I use them for everything, but I use them in a a very adaptive way uh, because just working with the military, we've had to learn how to take, I think, very structured techniques. And since the military environment can be pretty unpredictable and chaotic. Well, how do you apply a mental rehearsal when you have no idea what the environment is going to uh, kind of produce? And it was all about using mental rehearsals for reactions, for starting a good snowball. It wasn't necessarily rehearsing through an entire thing. It was the first minute of it. How am I going to be? And really just focusing on reactions and then also showing up with character. So those are the three things, training versus trusting mindset, that zone of optimal functioning, and then the power of mental rehearsals as a player. I want to make sure we got this here because this is, I love when things get chunked out into threes. You know, lesson one is the training versus trusting mindset. I want to kind of dive into that a little bit because you said something about learning how to turn your brain off. And if there's any mental skill that the coaches can get value from if teaching your athletes, how to turn the brain off or shift into that trusting mindset from training. Uh, let's unpack that. And then you talked about the zone of optimal functioning. You know, we've maybe heard it referred to here a lot as also as ideal performance state. And to your point of everyone wanting to get amped up and my mentor, Dr. Ken Revisa, this goes back, my God, um, when somebody do the, someone do the research and put it in the chat for us, when did Nebraska with Tom Osborne win the national championships in college football? Because Ken Revisa was working with Dr. Nate Zinzer, I believe, who was at West Point with, um, um, Tom Osborne in Nebraska. And they used to take the locker room and I actually tried this. I tried this with SMU with coach Morris, Chad Morris, who we had on here where they would break up the locker room, like, like. You know, during the game, they're going to meet by positions, right? So the quarterbacks are in one spot, receivers, another spot, linemen, another spot, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, so that the coaches know where to go. But before that, like before they started getting into into position-specific meetings right early, they broke the locker room up into basically the zone of optimal functioning. Who are the guys that wanted to play the heavy metal music and just just kind of slam? Who are the guys that wanted to sleep? Who are the guys that wanted to tell jokes and play around? Who are the guys that didn't know what they needed to do? They called them floaters. And when they stepped into one of those environments, they would be able to chameleon themselves into whatever environment they needed to be in. And then, you know, when a certain time came and they went out for warm-ups and came back in, the locker room got transformed into position specific. So it was like 
optimal functioning specific, position specific, and they were able to adapt to that, which I which I've never heard someone talk about, which I thought was pretty cool. And then the third piece you talked about was the mental rehearsal and the imagery piece. And I love the idea of starting a good snowball. Personal question before we go back to unpack the training, trusting mindsets a little more. When you say visualize the start, because military can be so chaotic. And I look at like, if I'm working with a golfer, they, they know, you know, it's going to happen. You're going to walk up to the ball. You're going to have all the time you need. You're going to enter the shot. You're going to hit the shot. The shot's going to land. You're going to walk to the next ball. You're a UFC fighter. You don't know what's going to happen in that cage. You know, you're going to get in a fight, but you don't know if it's going to be standing on the ground. If you're fighting on your back, if you're on top of someone else's back, like it's flowing like a combat situation, I would imagine would be, but the start of that fight until you touch gloves and get it on is very controllable out of the locker room, how you get in the cage, the way you maneuver in the cage, the way you come out for the stare down. So when you say having a good snowball, do you, what exactly do you mean? I usually will, uh, kind of coach people into visualizing the first 30 seconds to one minute and stopping there because I've found that a lot of rigidity can occur, especially if you're in a very adaptive sport or environment, that when you rehearse exactly the way you want it to go, when things don't go that way, all of a sudden you're kind of thrown back and a little bit shocked. So it's that first 30 seconds to a minute, and it's more about your body language, your energy, where your head is, how your focus is. So all the things that are still in your control in that first 30 seconds to a minute and it's before the action has started. So for our guys, it might be while they're walking to their truck and they're still behind uh, the gate where it's a bit safer. Um, you know, for me, it might be before I'm gonna go into a group of 300, it's visualizing how I'm gonna walk up onto that uh, podium and just rehearsing that piece and then kind of letting the others flow. And so you can remain moldable to the environment. Mm. Now you've, you've done some ultra endurance racing how would you work this in ultra endurance? Just kind of seeing the mile start and maybe how you'd go into an aid station. What would that look like? Oh, that's a great question. Cause it's funny. My old site manager, uh, when I was now it's called Fort Liberty, but it was called Fort Bragg. Uh, then we I was at a race and she thought I was going to have this huge elaborate, uh, pre-performance routine just cause she was first in this field being a site manager. It's not where her training was. She was a former military officer and she keeps looking at me like, when are you going to start your routine? Just like, I'm not elaborate. I used to be, and that actually puts me in a very perfect has to happen mindset. And it causes the paralysis by analysis during execution. So for her, I was doing stuff, but it was all keeping my energy right where it needed to be, not being too amped up, not being uh, too down, kind of keeping loose, but it was not anything overly elaborate. Um, And then with running, I mean, for me, I ran for decision points. uh, And that's really what it was. There's going to come a point when you're running these ultra endurance events where you're going to want to quit or your body's going to hurt really, really, really bad. And I run for those points. So I'd remind myself when those points hit Mm -hmm. where everything hurt and you're wondering, you know, should I just throw in the towel? Well, that's you're running for this point because it's an analogy for life. And this is going to dictate what you do in life because you're building these mental blueprints for, am I going to keep going and persist and find a way, or am I going to build a mental blueprint for uh, throwing in the towel? Now I know one is running and one is not, but I do believe a lot of things act as an analogy for life. And we reinforce those through our different hobbies, activities, passions, whatever it might be. So for me, I just reminded myself of my why at those points. 
And there was really nothing on aid stations. I actually very rarely stopped at aid stations. I just carried the water on my back because I lost momentum if I stopped. Uh, so I kind of avoided stopping and having a routine there. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was really just fighting through those decision points. Oh, that's why you do it, right? To get to those decision points, to introduce yourself to yourself moments, yes. you know, where a decision is made. Uh, I, once I didn't think I was going to get back into the ultra endurance game, Brittany, but you're, you're, you're putting me in that direction. <laughs> and, and let me ask this. So for any of the coaches that are on this call, right. Cause, cause all of us, none of us are ultra endurance athletes until we are one, you know, and you were, you were the, you were the non ultra endurance athlete in terms of you were playing basketball, which is explosive, right. Which is short burst, high energy jumping, not. Uh, it's like, if you didn't come down the path, if I was a cross country runner my entire life and I just continued that. Right. So at some point you made the decision to go, ah, let's go ahead. Ultra endurance. Before we go back to going kind of through these three lessons, I've said that a bunch and we'll, we will get back to them. Take me through the, the benefit that you have experienced from pursuing ultra endurance, just the overall benefit that has made for you in your life. Testing myself and uh, getting through hard points. Now, I know those are mostly physical points, uh, but one of the things that sticks with me that I still use in life is pain rotates. I remember my first ultra endurance race, it was a 12 hour race and it was just do as many loops as you can. This lady could tell I was probably struggling. She goes, don't worry, next loop something else will hurt. And at first I'm like, wow, that's kind of pessimistic. And then I thought about it and I went through it and I was like, wow, that's actually very optimistic because I won't have to deal with this pain forever. It will just be another pain and I'll keep learning how to deal with these new pains, but it won't last forever. It will be something new to overcome. And that was actually incredibly freeing. So uh, it is testing yourself and finding like, yes, life is a struggle. Like that's, we can't avoid it. Uh, But I think oftentimes we inflict more pain upon ourselves than what the moment necessarily has contained within it. And ultra endurance has taught me how to keep moving through that. And has also, you said, introduced me to myself. It really did. It, It tested my character and my really all the things that I say I am in terms of my values and my character. And I remember a moment where I wasn't, I, uh, someone had shown up to try to help us out with, you know, carrying our belongings, that type of stuff. And I was just at a low point and he was trying to be helpful and he's trying to give me a sandwich. And I was just an absolute ass to him. <laughs> I was just an asshole. And then, like, after that, it stuck with me and It was like, wow, who am I at my lowest? I don't want to be defined as an a-hole at my lowest. Mm. And that's who I was. And I had every excuse we can make in the book. And I think we need to stop, you know, justifying and allowing, you know, moments to justify not showing up as our best selves. But that for me, even though it sounds like a really small moment, it was like, wow, I want to treat human beings better when I'm at my low. Mm. And it's a level of understanding that you might not have gotten to in without that pain and without that suffering, you know, and realizing that we, we, I think we all have a breaking point, you know, and we get to a point of stress, we get to a point of fatigue where we become not the best version of us. And we want to find that breaking point. 
We want to find out where that is so that we can work through it. You know, it's like, if you never do a max, a max lift, think about it, like, like the mental version of a bench press. If you never do a max lift and find out, okay, that's too much. I can't do that. I want to be able to do that. Now I got to train more. And I think that's kind of what we're going to, and that'll bring us back to lesson one, the training mindset and trusting mindset. But first I want to, again, thank CEO Mike Bahoon and Fundraising University for offering a variety of fundraising efforts to help teams and students run profitable, effective, and fast-paced fundraisers designed to raise the most amount of money in the least amount of time to help reach their fundraising goals. So if you're interested in running a fundraiser or becoming a part of the team, especially in the areas of Chicago, Central, Arkansas, also known Arkansas and South Florida, please contact Zach Sorensen, zsorensen at fundraisingu.net to learn more about getting started. We're back with Dr. Brittany Looney. Can we go back, Brittany, with lesson one? You talked about the training versus trusting mindset and how to turn the brain off. I know all coaches are chomping at the bit to learn how to get their athletes to do that. Could you unpack those two a little more for us? Yeah, so I think a lot happens off the field or off the court or whatever the playing venue is. I think I had such a training mindset because honestly, I feared failure and I never really faced that fear. And I learned this through working with the military because in my first couple years, what, and they actually have done a study on this since then, those who did not face the worst case scenario of you might lose your life or you might lose your buddies, uh, they tend to end up having a higher prevalence of PTSD. So this actually caused me to really reflect on a lot of things. Um, but I think that's the same, even though it's obviously to a much larger scale with the military population and first responders, like because that is a legit uh, concern. But when you avoid thoughts of your worst fear, I think it actually causes it to surface more in the moments you don't want it to. And I don't think I ever unpacked that fear of failure. I used it as motivation. I used it to drive me and it did, made me really great at training, but I needed to face that fear of failure and not being enough and what not being perfect truly meant for me to be able to switch over into a trusting mindset. So I think a lot of times when you have athletes who can't turn the brain off or can't switch to that trusting mindset, I think you're dealing with perfectionists. I think you're dealing with, I'm never going to be enough if I'm not perfect. And how they're judging themselves as a human being, not just as an athlete, tends to be through the outcomes that occur on the field, whether they're in their control or not. So I think it, it you truly have to face that. Well, what's the worst thing that would happen? Unpack that and start to switch that mindset and reprogram from perfectionist. And, uh, you know, Brian Johnson with Heroic, I kind of got this from one of his philosophers note, is unpack the perfectionist, rub it up against reality and start to develop an optimalist and really looking at progress over time versus if I don't live up to this perfect ideal and I don't have a perfect game and I have a turnover and blah, 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 I'm not enough. I won't ever get there. I won't, you know, turn pro, whatever that next thing is. It was a catastrophizing of things that happen to the best players in the entire world. Tom Brady has thrown a ton of interceptions. Michael Jordan has missed a ton of game-winning shots. So I think it's starting to take on and reprogramming the athlete to be more of an optimalist and bring up these type of examples. I think uh, when we were younger, sounded really old now, back in our days when we were walking two miles to school, uh, up, uphill both ways. Yeah. yeah. But back in the day, we didn't talk about the mistakes the greats made. 
We just celebrated their greatness. And I do think it helps to show them like their favorite athlete and then show them their favorite athlete's worst moments. And it just humanizes them. You don't have to be perfect to even get to the level of greatest of all time. And I think I would have benefited from seeing stuff like that. But then once you've kind of done the off-field work, I then think it's all about that pre-performance routine and making that shift, not just the day of the game, but it probably happens the day before when you're doing the walkthroughs, when you're getting ready with the game tape, I think the whole shift has to start going into trusting versus let's keep training. Let's keep training. I think that shift is all right. Here's what you have trained yourself to do and having that routine start even the day before. Mm. Mm. So good. So much to unpack there. And, um, you know, Brittany, you mentioned like showing athletes at their worst moments right now. Now, a couple concepts that I want to share. And I, the three baseball examples I picked up from Dr. Rob Gilbert success hotline. And he says, if I say the name, these names to you, what do you think of Babe Ruth? People think home runs. Cy Young, they think the best pitcher ever. And then award that the, the, the best pitcher in baseball name is after. Right. And then ba- uh, Pete Rose, they think gambling, or they think like the most hits. Well, Babe Ruth struck out more than anybody else. Cy Young had more losses than anybody else too. He had more wins and more losses because they used to pitch every game. And then uh, Pete Rose, the hit King also got out more than anybody else in the history of baseball. So people remember you for your successes, not your failures. And there's a thing called the PGA tour fallacy. And I've you know worked with some PGA tour players and you go play golf with them. And sometimes I'm like, bro, I, I beat you in like three holes today. Now three holes isn't a lot, but I'm a 20 handicap and these are the best 250 players in the world. I should not beat them on any hole. And they'll give me two shots a hole and we'll compete, you know, but here's what happens when you watch the PGA tour. If you look at the stats of putts made from three feet to 10 feet to 15 feet, and you go ask the average golfer, Hey, what do you think the make rate is on a six foot putt? And, and I'm going to butcher the number here, but they'll probably say 80% when in reality in the PGA tour, it's probably 60%, but here's the PGA tour fallacy. When you watch PGA tour on TV, they show you the best players in the world playing their best. They don't show you guys that don't make the cut. They don't show you the guy when they make the cut, that's finishing 50th. They show you the guys that are in the top 10, the best in the world at their best on that day. So you see him sticking balls next to flag sticks and you see him, you know, driving balls and dog legging it with, with, with a fade. And it's like, oh, those guys can, you know, make shots all the time. They don't always make those shots. You just see them because they made that shot that moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what they do. That's the PGA Tour fallacy. So when you actually look, and there's a book if you're for any golf nerds out there like me called Every Shot Counts by a guy named Mark Brody, where he does the statistical analysis of like the last 10 years of all the TrackMan data that they that you get and ShotLink data that you get in the PGA Tour. And it helps you understand that, you know, you lose more golf shots than you save. Like playing to a, playing for bogey avoidance is actually better than trying to go get a birdie, you know, and it's probably easier and better on your golf game. So anyway, to your point of showing people their worst gives them a better understanding of what neutral and what good really is. And I think eliminate some of that perfectionist tendency and behavior, but let's say Brittany, you have that athlete that is the perfectionist or is let's say stuck in a training mindset. For example, I got a baseball hitter and they can't stop thinking about their swing. They're in the cage working on the swing. Now they're trying to hit a ball in a game, thinking about their swing. Boom, there goes 95. 
what would you say to that athlete who is stuck in a training mindset when they get in competition and should be trusting turning their brain off? How would you get them there? I would, well, work with the pre-performance routine, but then let's say it's in the game and they are working on their swing. Uh, I would just give them one cue, they're allowed to say. They they can't go more than one cue trying to correct. Let's say they're working on three things on their swing. Each at-bat, you can't be working on all three of those things. So I'll give you one thing, one cue you're allowed to go to. Uh, and then I also say do the do's. Uh, make sure it's oriented to what you actually want to do and not what you're trying to avoid doing. Uh, mm. So, yeah, that positively oriented cue. And then... One of the things that has helped me in adulthood, and it's probably been the most effective, but I don't know if it's just because career's different, that maturity, that type of thing, is focusing on my values and bringing my values to whatever I do. And that might be a bit different, with, especially with a younger athlete, might not resonate. But with a more mature athlete, it's, all right, well, show up the way you want to show up. And that might even be how you're handling a mistake. So I think uh, that's a way that I would go is what are your top three values that every time that you're out on the field, on the court, you want to uh, demonstrate and how are you demonstrating those in success and how are you demonstrating those in your failure? Hmm. And that allows you to always have control over that outcome. How you demonstrate your values is a hundred percent always in your control and for me, when it comes to teaching, training, you know, I've been doing this my entire adult life, I still get nervous. And I'm glad I get nervous because that means it's important. So I think I go through that with an athlete. Like the moment you don't get nervous is the day it doesn't matter. And that's a scarier thought, I think, for a lot of people is that realization of no nerves means it doesn't matter. I know I'd rather something matter uh, than not have nerves. And then I go through nerve reinterpretation. We actually, this was highly effective with the military personnel because they love the physiological aspect of it. We talked about the survival aspect of every aspects of nerves. So why does your heart rate increase? Well, we need to get blood out to the brain and the body that need it most for you to do well. Why do you start shaking? Well, because your body's primed to move. It means your reaction time could be better if you wouldn't try to hone it down. So going through all of the nerve reinterpretation, I found in the most stressful situations has helped those performers extremely well. And then just remind them of that and then give them a couple breathing tools if that's what works for them to just kind of give them something else to think about. Because I do believe the nerves are good for most performances. So it's not necessarily to say your nerves are wrong. You have this breathing technique. It's more of Here's this breathing technique to occupy your brain so you don't start getting in the way of this very smart evolutionary evolutionary survival mechanism that can actually make you a better athlete. So I'm just trying to occupy your mind with this breath control. Don't worry so much about relaxing, but what you'll see is they'll probably relax a bit more because now they're not over trying on that. Very interesting. If I heard that right, did you say that you'll use breathing control as a way to get them almost out of their head thinking about mechanics into thinking about, say, the breath before I get in the box to almost quiet my mind and think of anything, think of something other than my swing and my mechanic. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Just occupy the mind enough to get out of their own way. Mm. So good. Love that. Love that. Man, so much to unpack there too, the physiology of nerves, you know, and I remember 2001 walking into Cal State Fullerton, one of Ken Revis's stress management classes. And he would talk about, you know, when you start sweating, 
and and your mouth gets dry and you start feeling that that like you got that tension in your jaw and in your back and then you feel like you know your arms are heavy because the blood's uh, rushing out of your extremities because it's like there's a saber-toothed tiger coming after you you don't need to be digesting food you need to be getting out of there right you kind of go through and unpack like all the physiological reasons of stress and when you're aware of them of the, the way your body responds, you become more aware of the stress so that you can actually learn to use that as like a power pellet, you know, and use it as fuel. And, and I love your reference, um, you know, of, of, of like, uh, it's nervousness is excitement, you know, and kind of reframing that. Um, speaking of the nervousness, and you said, if I don't have the nervousness, it's like, I'm not prepared. Cause it's like, I don't care enough. And, and I would say that I, I get nervous over borderline like my wife knows when I'm going into doing a speaking engagement that I care about. Cause about three days outside, I become a little bit of an irritable ass because it's like game time. You know, it's, it's, um, she knows it's coming up and she's like, you need to start going places like two days early. But anyway, so, so I just get on edge, you know, and I can't sleep and, and I get irritable and I overprepare and things like that. But that's that I feel like to your second lesson, the zone of optimal functioning feel like if I, if I didn't feel like I was in a, the 24 seven gunfight, I would find the next one to get into. Like, I almost don't know if it's like a, an obsessive need to be producing an obsessive need to create like a certain internal state that I feel like I do perform my best from. And maybe I don't, you know, maybe I'm, I'm lying to myself. So how does one find out Brittany, that zone of optimal functioning? How does one go about finding that? Uh, reflection. Uh, there is a, physiological way to find that out, but it takes uh, logistic regression analysis and all this. So uh, with the use of biometrics and then uh, looking at your outcomes and that type of thing, but that's not available to everybody. So I won't even go down that route. Um, it is through that zone moment, no zone moment reflection. So when I am in the zone, what are my thoughts? My best possible games, what were my thoughts? Where was my energy level? Physiologically, how did I feel? Emotionally, how did I feel? And just try to think through a couple of those different moments, jot down those thoughts, emotions, physiology, and then do the th same thing for the no zone moments. So your worst days, where were your thoughts? What were you actually thinking? Uh, where was your brain? That type of stuff, emotions and physiology as well. And then compare and contrast, because there's going to be some similarities. It's not all different. I think we often assume it's all different. And I think it's important to look, okay, what's similar? And then where are those differences? And how can we backwards plan your performance routine to in some way account for the differences between your zone and your no zone moments? And when I say backwards plan, the way that we help people build routines is first thing we do is look at what's the uh, requirement from the human being. So when I work with the military, I work across a lot of different occupational specialties. So sometimes I'll have a class where one person's a combo person and then another one is a direct action. And it can vary quite a bit of what's expected of them. So I have them just write down, OK, as a human being, what's required of me? So for an athlete, it could be, well, what's required of you to do really well? My lights are like flickering here. It's all, it's all part of the ambiance. I dig it. Yeah, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I must be creepy watching it. <laughs> Here, let me see if, um, I, see if I can do the same thing here. Make you feel more comfortable, Brittany. Hang on a second. I just yeah, these lights just, installed. Let me see if I can see if I can get these. Poltergeist in here. Let's see. Let's see if I can. People like people like them. Here we go. Let's see if I can make this happen. I don't know. It's not, not quite. I see working. it. 
not quite working the way I thought it would, but anyway, <laughs> here we go. All right. So for the backwards play, actually, you mind if I draw on the whiteboard? No, please do it. No, I love that. Okay. And let me know if you can't see it. So we'll start at the end and we'll look at what is the task. And I'm going to go turn off this light too, because uh, perfect. we can I see you. You're, you're good. Okay, hold on. You're good. There we go. I was at, I, I mean, you can't, you can't make this up. I'm at the Diamondbacks Guardians game yesterday for Father's Day. First inning, lights go out. Can't make that up. 25 minutes left. No, you can't. Got to be ready for it. That's right. So task requirements is first. And I have it all the way over here on the uh, right side just because okay. I'm going to backwards plan this. So then I would ask, so Brian, let's do it with you. So okay. when you're going to a speaking engagement, what's required of you? What's required of me? Uh, I would say energy engagement with the audience empowerment with strategy and specific things that they can do and take away, depending on the size of the audience, I would say knowing everyone's name, what's required of me preparation, what's required of me um communication with the host so that i get the names and the headshots of the people that are going to be there ahead of time communication in that i clearly explain to them the venue that i want so i i've shown up to multiple speaking engagements where i have taken that for granted and i show up and they have me plugged into a tv instead of to an lcd they have laptop speakers with a microphone when i want tony robbins blow out your eardrum sound system in the ceiling <laughs> right so i they have they have it in a cafeteria instead of in a theater so i have to the preparation for me is it's not the preparate the, the easiest piece is when i walk on the stage the hard part is what do i give them preparation wise a flip learning ahead of time to do before i get there because if they don't have anything that they've done ahead of time before i get there they'll get lost in the context because i speak fast with a lot of information um, so also knowing my audience, like my research, like who am I speaking to, what are their challenges and how can I give them some solution? So, and then you can put down the acronym Ken's, which I'll share with people. I just came up with this, this uh, strategy in the last month or so, uh, in K is knowledge, right? What do they know? What do they know about the topic I'm talking about? Let's say mental performance and then E executing, what are they doing? What are they executing on? And then N what's the most immediate need? What's the next step that they could take? And then I give them a solution. So that's that's sort of sort of some of the things that I'm going there that are all going through my mind amongst others to get ready. Okay, perfect. I like that. So that kind of goes a bit into task requirements. Then we'll backwards plan it into physiologically. And this is the exact order I would go in uh, working with someone. Cool. So if you need to have a certain level of energy, give me one to 10, 10 being holy cow, a, and this is the example I usually use with our guys. Someone just walked in here with a gun. Yep. That's a 10 out of 10. Yep. One is you're falling asleep. Where do you need to be? Let's take it to the chat and ask people where, that have seen me speak. I know Martin is in here. Where would you guys think I would be? I know where I want to be, but I want to see, I want to get some inner audience interaction here as I know what I would be. Interesting. An eight and nine to 10. <laughs> 10. Uh, I would say, I would say, I would say 10 and nine, nine. I'd say nine. 10, 10, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm too caffeinated. Okay. I, get going too, I bounce around. I bounce around too much. So you have a little bit of an inverted U. <laughs> yes. I, I live at the far end of the inverted U coach. I live there. All right. So then physiologically, when you are at your best speaking engagement wise, give me three things that it feels like in your body. 
light, explosive, dynamic. Okay. All right. Now we're going to go to the emotional piece. So we're backwards planning again. So now we got emotions. And I'll have them brainstorm a little bit longer than what I'm having you do here. Sure, sure. But you've probably given this some thought. What are your three emotional ingredients that when you go into any speaking engagement that it's like one, two, three, check, I'm there emotionally. Would no more than three, you can have would, less. Would present moment be an emotion? Like focus? You could go thought or emotion, but since you're called, you want to put in emotion, that's where we'll put yeah, it. Yeah, I, I would say, I would say present, I would say serve and bring the juice. Like those would be the three emotions for me. Like I'm going to bring energy. I'm going to be present. And it doesn't, that's it. There's nothing else in the world that matters at that moment. I'm going to serve the people that show up and give them my best. Perfect. Now, last part, we're going to go to the thought piece. So think about this as either truly the thought, like the self-talk aspect, uh, or where does your brain need to be? So you can think about it from two different angles. So just give um, me about three to five yeah. descriptors. On them, not me. It's got to be on the people in the audience. Their part, their 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 experience, their their facial, their body language, their their energy. The other thing is is I got to know the content and and I got to know exactly what the plan is. And if I ever try to wing it, I don't have a plan. That's when I suck. I've got to be really prepared and sometimes prepared to, if it's a 37 minute talk at a national baseball coaches convention, what I'm doing every minute. You know, if it's a 90 minute talk at heroic, what I'm doing every minute. Uh, I can't always prepare that way because, because that's about, an, it's a lot of time to prepare that way. I'd always have that type of luxury, but, but those would be the two things I would think to stick out to me the most. Okay, perfect. So then from this point, really what we have is here's the task requirements. And then what I would do is make sure that you being at a nine allows you to fulfill the task requirements. Cause sometimes uh, what I found is People will think they know where they want to be, especially if they haven't given it as much thought as you have. I know you've been in this for your career, so you've probably given it some thought. But I'll have some people say, fine motor control, and then tell me they need to be a 10 out of 10. And I'm like, those two don't really go together physiologically. So what we'll start to do here is, okay, can these requirements produce this outcome if all of these were in check? Hmm. So we'll do a quick spot check. Would that yeah. be the case? That yeah. uh, we've got from the thought piece, you're focused on them, content, confidence, I put, and planned. So that's the thoughts. The emotion are present, serve, and bring the juice. You've yeah. got your physiology at a nine out of 10. You're feeling light, explosive, and dynamic. Let me know if you want me to slow no, down. You're good. You're good. No, okay. keep, keep bringing it as fires me up. And then your task requirements, you have that you need to bring the energy, you need to uh, have engagement, strategy, know their names, and then a lot of other things around prep. I won't hit those right now because that would happen earlier on. Yep. So we'll just kind of draw the line there at names. And then you've got your Ken's, your knowledge, execution, define the need and identify the solution. So for your brain to be able to actually do Ken's, and then have the energy engagement strategy and remember names is a nine out of 10 still where you optimally need to be. It might be an eight. I think, yeah. I think it might be an eight because if they're, I, I feel like when you talk about, you mentioned the inverted you, 
if I looked at my performances and the times where I haven't performed at the level I want to, I feel like it's because I'm too far over too much caffeine, not enough plan, trying to get too much in in a short amount of time. And because I'm going so fast, I'm losing people. So I miss that engagement piece. I miss the, um, the, the connection with the audience and the serving the audience because serving the audience is not about what I say. It's about their experience, right. And crafting an experience based around where they're at and what they're trying to get. Um, and sometimes I, I get too far to the side of excitement. And so I think maybe it's dialing it down. I know as a baseball player, I was terrible because I was a nine, 10, I probably needed to be a five, six. I'm not a good golfer because I play with a seven, eight. I probably need to be a three, four. Um, and speaking is probably no difference, kind of an analogy for my life. Perfect. So at that point, you see how, okay, let's just make sure that what you think your requirements are to fill the task requirements that those marry up. And then once we have this, then we would develop the three to five steps and the routine that would help the person get there. That's not overly elaborate. Uh, and that they would always have control over no matter what the situation so this really is what informs the routine itself. This is not the routine. This is, okay, let me make sure my routine helps me get to these points. So for example, routine, if we were to come up with three to five points, I would say routine would be get the names and pictures three days before the event, because I'll study that in the flight. And then exercise, get on a treadmill. I always get on a treadmill the morning of, and I run through my presentation. And I run through the pictures. So I get pictures for flight. I, I, I do run through. I call it the running run through. I run through on the treadmill. Um, and then is there anything right before you're going to go on stage or in the. Room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, dep it depends on the environment. But if I'm like backstage and someone's speaking before me, like I look like a, I, I almost act like a UFC fighter in a locker room. Like I'm literally tuck, jump, push-ups, move back. Like I cannot sit still. And, you know, I try, it was funny. I was at the heroic event this year speaking there going after, and the woman who presented before me was tremendous. And I was in their session and I was into it and I was loving it. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. And I was like, it was so good. I'm like, I'm getting pulled in. I'm getting pulled out of my ideal performance state. Like I got to get out of here. And I went to the back and was just walking back and forth. And then I called her like three days later and said, Hey, your presentation was amazing. And I had to miss it because I was in my own shit and I was getting, <laughs> I didn't want to get out of it. So what do you got for me? And we broke it down. It was great. But her presentation was tremendous. So I would say, yeah, there's kind of like that moment for me. And then, and then when I start, right. And I come on stage there, like my, my first two to three minutes when I bring it is, is usually the same. I have an activity where everyone gets up. I have them power clapping and doing things like to get the energy, get their energy level up. Um, but really it's almost a selfish move to make sure I'm getting my energy level up. So there's that kind of like, get the pictures, know the audience, know my content, run through running, run through, and then get out there and cut it loose. I love it. So obviously you've thought about this, uh, quite a bit, but with that, um, well, actually, I got a question for you, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, no, please. This uh, is great. Because I found that I do this because one of my, like the secret sauce of my routine uh, when I'm getting ready for an in-person thing is all about energy. Like, but what I've also found is sometimes it's making up for if I don't feel prepared enough. Well, then I'll just bring the energy and bring them in. Uh, and it, it's almost like I'm trying to overcompensate. If I don't feel prepared enough, at least I'll have fun and we'll have a good experience. Do you ever find yourself doing that? 
Uh, I, I mean, early on for sure, for sure. Um, in, you know, I'm 20 years into this, did the speaking piece. Right. So, so now I feel like the, yes, if I'm, if I'm feeling like I'm underprepared, I'll, I don't know if I'd bring more energy. If I'm underprepared, I feel like I, I slow down and ask a lot more questions and I, and I have a lot more interaction and mm -hmm. I, I would, and, and, and now that we're talking about this, it's funny because this is a called awareness for people who enjoy this, right? This is awareness kicking in. The more questions you ask me, the more I reflect and the better I get is some of those are my best sessions. Some of the best sessions. I was going to ask are, that after. Some of my best sessions. Yeah. What's that? The engagement piece. Yes. You've got the engagement piece. And the connection. And I'm like, yep. and, 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 and I'm able to not go, okay, I got to get this content in, but boom, 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 and move. I'm able to just connect. And I feel like it's almost the difference between when I'm doing team consulting and when I'm doing keynote speaking, like a keynote speech in a workshop are different. A keynote speech, it's like step on the gas. Let's get this thing. A workshop, it's like gas, peel it back, question, engage, 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 energy builder, transition, gas, gas, and bring it down, engage. It's like a concert where a keynote, yeah. a keynote, there's not a ton of interaction with the audience. Like there's not. There's not a lot of like, hey, write this down and work on this. That's why I don't necessarily like doing keynotes as much as I do workshops because I like being the conductor and and bringing the juice different times. But yes, I would agree that in a team setting where I'm working with a group and I'm this is maybe not as confident or as prepared, I would bring more juice. And I'm not sure that's the right play. Yeah. Thanks for answering that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks for being transparent and putting it out there. And thanks everybody for hanging out and listening to the Brittany coach my ass. <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful. Well, Hey, I know we got just, a, I, know we left. Oh. I know we got just a few minutes left and I slammed my desk and apparently broke my microphone. Oh, hang on. We can hear you. Good. How about that? Got me now. Brand new yep. day on a desk. I smacked the desk and apparently broke the mic. Good. Um, so want to uh, want, want to open it up for questions. Open up for questions here in the chat, Brittany. I thought it was fantastic the way you came in and broke down the three lessons of training versus trusting mindset, the zone of optimal functioning, and then you know the power of mental rehearsal. We went into great depth on the training and trusting and the, and the, the depth on the zone of optimal functioning. And I know we could do the same on mental rehearsal. Um, for, so as we open it up for questions, anybody has a question for Dr. Brittany Looney here, please post it inside of the chat. But while they're coming up with that question, what is the best place, or should I say, where is the best place for people to get you if they wanted to inquire about you coaching them or coming in to work with their coaches or coming in to speak to their coaches and athletes? What's the best way for people to, to get you? Email or LinkedIn. My email address is Brittany, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y at elite-cognition.com. So don't forget the hyphen there. Uh, and then LinkedIn it's my name, Brittany, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, Loney, L-O-N-E-Y. And what you'll see is a brain as my picture. So that's where you know you've got the right one when you see a blue brain. Uh, I've been calling you Brittany Looney. Thank you for now for for, oh, for me. That is completely <laughs> fine. I mean, I've lived my life. <laughs> it's, it's either lonely or loony, oh. um, like every athletic award that I've ever had. Amazing. Amazing. The, 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 uh, the LinkedIn, what was it again? Um, give me one more time. I'm gonna post it in the chat here. Uh, Brittany Loney and yep. L O N E Y is how you spell my last yep. name. That's on LinkedIn. Yep. Okay. Let me pull that up here. Eight Brittany Loney profiles. 
in-flight service. That's not you. Um, oh Should be a blue brain. No, I'm going to keep searching and posting the chat. While I'm searching, a uh, question comes in from Coach Duncan. What obstacles did you have working with operators, not being an operator yourself? Great question. Uh, early on, it was rough. Uh, definitely had to find humility. I think coming in, you come in with uh, the arrogance of a novice. I was fresh out of grad school. Uh, and even though I had a lot of schooling, I worked with a lot of people while I was going through grad school. It was like, oh, I'm going to give all these people all this knowledge. And really what I learned I had to do in that community is sit back and listen. And I think that's helped quite a bit is being able to hear the nuances of what people say. Um, and then leading from character and demonstrating true care for people. One of the chaplains actually had taken me aside uh, soon after I'd gotten with 3rd Special Forces Group, and it was probably that same week, and he was in the gym. He told me, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And I took that to heart. And I was just there all the time, uh, just showing that I care, doing whatever needed to be done. Uh, so th there was some rough feedback. You have to take a lot of feedback when you work with the military population, any population, I would say, but they are very much into uh, radical candor. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a very good way, because if they're not honest with each other, then people get killed. And that same level of feedback is given to you coming into their world. And at first it was a bit hard uh, to take. I mean, I got some feedback that would say, uh, they should use your salary to fill in the potholes. Uh, there's quite a quite a few uh, comments early on. So you have to learn how to catalyze those comments for what they are, for motivation, to be better for them. I think that's all I wanted to be, was be better for them. And when that's at the forefront, yes, my ego is hurt sometimes, but it was super temporary because I cared more about helping them than mm. feeling good about myself. Yeah. And I think that, I think that comes across in your work. You know, I think that comes across what, what you're like, you go back to your core values, right? And if your core value is service, that's going to come across. If your core value is humility and learning and growth, that's going to come across. If you don't have a clear set of core values, that's going to come across. So Brittany, last question I have for you here is you mentioned core values. What, what would, what are your core values? Let me think. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be a moment. I would say service to others is number one. Authenticity. And I read a book that kind of put this into a really good frame for me. It's living fearlessly myself. Uh, so all aspects of myself. And then uh, kindness and compassion that has risen up through the years. That wasn't always one of my top values. But uh, I worked with someone who it was hers, and I saw how much of an effect she could have on people through kindness. And I wasn't serving others the way I could because I didn't have that as a top value. I wasn't mean to everybody, but it wasn't truly putting them first. And I learned from her to have that in my top values. And then the last one is learning. I love learning. I love being proven wrong, too. I mean, it hurts in the moment. But I, there's nothing better to me than the feeling of like, wow, I was wrong on my perspective of that person, of that situation. Like, I like being shown the other side of the coin and like just being enlightened uh, mm -hmm. to a different viewpoint and being wrong. 
Hmm. Awesome. Well, Brittany, um, I, that was one of the faster hours I've ever had in my life. And, you know, your service to others and your authenticity and living fearless and sharing your story and the kindness and campaign and compassion came out in this call. Um, can't thank you enough for joining us here in, in this group coaching program, sharing your, your experience, sharing your strategies, the three lessons. I mean, it was, it was awesome. And I'm sure a lot of coaches will, will be reaching out to you. Are you on Instagram? Can they reach you there too? I am on Instagram. I don't go on it too often, but you can reach out to me. I'll make sure I check it. Okay. Um, let me even see what my handle, I think it, if you were to just, uh, put my name in, but hmm, let me make sure. The other email, it might be through, and y'all are going to laugh at me like I'm 12 again, hoopup33 at AOL.com. Yes. yes. It's like what all my social media is under. Amazing. You can try that. I still check that email too. <laughs> Amazing. Awesome. Brittany, can't thank you enough for taking time out of your hectic schedule to join us here and looking forward to lining up at some point with you at the uh, start of an ultra endurance race. Uh, and staying with you as long as I can until you ride off into the sunset and kick my ass. So looking forward to uh, meeting you there. And thanks again for joining us here for all of our coaches that have joined us. Uh, again, just want to say thank you for what you're doing for kids and what you do to invest in yourself to be that best version of yourself. So it comes across in your coaching. And again, thank you to Fundraising University and Coach Mike Bahoon for providing this unbelievable opportunity. I mean, the guests, Brittany, yourself, the guests we've had on here. I mean, we've had national championship winning coaches. We've got special operations, mental performance coaches. We had a world, a, a mental performance coach for the world series champion Atlanta Braves. I mean, Mike Bahoon and fundraising university. Let's go. Thank you for what you're doing. Didn't break the microphone that time. And thank you for putting this on for the coaches that attended for the coaches that showed up live, the coaches that watched the recordings. Um, you're different. You're separating yourself and you're separating yourself from the work that you put in and work wins. And Brittany, you worked it today. Thanks for being here, everybody. Dominate your week. And we'll be seeing you uh, some way, somehow in July of 2023. I haven't got that quite mapped out yet, but when we do check, check your inbox, we'll be sure to let you know. Thanks everybody. Dominate the day.